Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing an interview with jazz trumpet and guitar player, arranger, composer, author, Randy Sankey. At 11, in order to impress his older brother, already a musician, Randy borrowed a coronet and learned to play Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Although he never expected to make a living as a jazz musician, and there were many twists and turns on the road, that is exactly what happened. This is a lovely story told by a thoughtful and very interesting man. So hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh, you really can Deeper, deeper down about being the person you really are, not the person you think you have to be, not the person other people are, not the person somebody told you you had to be or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many of us have experiences in our childhoods which discourage us from being some of the things that we naturally are. And because children are flexible, we are quite often able to pretend we are not these things that are bringing an unpleasant consequence. 
And so many come into adulthood having forgotten important things about themselves. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in this interview with Randy Sankey, that is exactly what you hear. Randy is someone who always knew what he wanted to do, and even though he didn't know it was possible, he continued to pursue it. Listen to this interesting, introspective man tell the story of how he went from someone who didn't believe he could to somebody who did. I'm going to lead into the interview by playing a cut from his CD called I Hear Music, and that will lead right into my interview. Okay, so I'm here with Randy Sankey, and I'm explaining to Randy that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Mm. And I don't think it's a huge stretch to assume that the art to which you have given your life is the art of music, playing? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. That's correct? Yeah, playing, arranging, writing, and writing about music to, to a certain extent. Really? Yeah. Okay, so... I only ask one question, mm-hmm. and it is, do you remember, can you tell me, 
the very first moment in your life when you became aware of music, were drawn to music, found music attractive, any of that? Well, I mean, I guess my earliest memories was, uh, you know, raiding my parents' record collection or, or hearing my mother uh, practice the piano. She was an amateur pianist, but she was pretty serious in her own way. She played a lot of Chopin, and then she got into uh, ragtime when there was a bit of a ragtime craze in the 60s. So how, would, how old would you say you were when you found yourself interested in it or drawn to listening to your mother playing? Or? Oh, well, you know, six, eight. I started playing an instrument when I was about uh, 11, 10 or 11. Maybe. And how did that happen? Well, I have an older brother, and he played, uh, he was playing some instruments. We, we had a drum set. He got into drums, so we had a drum set at home. So, of course, you know, all the kids have to play that. <laughs> yes, right, right. It's right, just right. him and me. And, uh, and then he brought a trumpet home. And then a friend of mine played trumpet, and I thought I would surprise my brother by just uh, playing a tune for him when he came home. And so I learned to uh, tune on the trumpet. It was hang down your head, Tom. Tom Tooley, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I could sort of play it uh, for him when he came home that you, Just um, by ear? Yeah, yeah, or the friend taught me or something. I don't know, uh -huh. something like that. So you play, you know, Tom Dooley, and then do you think, gee, this is, this is fun, I'd like to do this and ask for lessons, or what happens? I mean, I was very influenced by my older brother. He, he uh, started buying jazz records, and so I would listen to those, mm -hmm. uh, starting with uh, Louis Armstrong, Big Spiderback. And at that time, uh, we were fortunate, we grew up in Chicago, and I was able to hear a lot of the greats at that time, which I'm so fortunate. And I think those were the, the most life-changing episodes, you know. Because I, I, I heard Louie when I was about 12 or 13, and I, I snuck backstage and I got him to autograph my cornet case, which I donated to the Louis Armstrong archives at uh, Queens College. They have it. But he signed it all across, all the way across the whole thing. So you were already playing when yeah, you I was went, right? Yeah, I was already playing, yeah, right. And I, and I was pretty familiar, you know, I listened, had absorbed uh, the Columbia Louis Armstrong story by the time I heard him. And so I knew what I was listening to, and I knew how important he was. When I heard Ella Fitzgerald, I heard Cap Basie, I heard Duke Ellington's band, John Coltrane, Wes Montgomery, people who died, you know, not, not too far after that. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I was fortunate to be in a good place to, to be able to, you know, experience those people live. Really? Yeah. And um, so are you thinking, this is something I'd like to do with my life? You know, my father wasn't really a happy academic. The idea of playing and traveling seemed a lot more fulfilling to me than, than the idea of teaching. Or okay, so you were thinking about that? Yeah, I was. I was back then, yeah. Are you playing in, in bands in school? Yeah, you... I was, yeah, I was playing jobs from about 13 on. Wow. I was always intending to pursue it professionally and, you know, just did whatever jobs were available and then... Whatever jobs were available to yeah. a 13, 14, 15-year-old yeah. kid? Yeah, well, there was like a pop band and I had a, you know, and they played an E and A <laughs> and I borrowed a cornet that I could tune in those 
So I, I did jobs with them. We were quite busy. We, you know, we played maybe once or twice a weekend. So already you're a professional, essentially, yeah. as a teenager. Okay, so now, are you studying um, not only the instrument, but mm -hmm. theory? I mean... Yeah, I, well, I was very fortunate. I had some very good teachers early on. Did you go to college? Yeah, I went to Indiana University uh, to study music. My second year, I was very influenced by one of the students that came in, Michael Brecker. I don't know if yeah, you know his name. Quickly, you know, we formed a band, and we also formed a rock band. And we, and he was very inspiring because he was so dedicated to music. He wasn't a music major; he was a Spanish major, but he just, you know, he was totally into practicing and listening and taking things off records and, uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I learned a lot from him. Now, we had a very bad uh, experience the summer of my, after my second year of college. We played at this collegiate jazz festival and the, uh, the man who is the jazz critic for the Chicago Tribune and his wife decided they wanted to manage our band, you know, which seemed great at the time, mm -hmm. and she uh, got us an apartment in Chicago on Wells Street, which was kind of the counterculture thoroughfare. A series of bad incidents happened to us. Uh, well, a couple of people quit the band, and we were trying to find replacements, and this woman was very adamant about us not letting other people stay with us. Um, you know, which I can see the wisdom of now, but at any rate, the, the one of the people in the band had a friend who, and she and her sister came in, moved in with us, and her sister was very unstable. She took uh, LSD one night and jumped through a window, oh. committed suicide. This was the summer of 68, right before the uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago. And uh, the, the police were looking for hippies to bust for, you know, we all had long hair and all right. that. And, and the, the, the press was looking for sensational trials. So basically everybody was rounded up and put in jail, uh, except for myself and Mike Brecker. There was a, a prosecuting attorney that uh, was looking to make a name for himself and was trying to pin murder charges oh on God. the guys in the band for as if this, you know, this poor innocent uh, girl had been fed uh, LSD by these guys and they were responsible. Uh, but they, you know, they found out that uh, basically all the drugs were in the possession of the uh, sister and they didn't want to press charges against her, which was, you know, humane at least. And so everybody finally got out. but. They, you know, everybody was was quite changed by that whole episode. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it was terrifying. In any case, I was also having a physical problem with playing the trumpet because even even with the instruction I'd gotten, uh, I had some bad physical habits that I didn't really understand, and so uh, I got an operation on my throat because I was just keeping going with the same bad habits, I decided that it was better to just quit and try something else. So the, I was back in Chicago for a year, just doing non-musical jobs. And finally I moved to Bennington College and got a job accompanying for dance classes on the piano while I practiced guitar and tried to become a guitar player. Oh. Eventually after three years of that, I moved to New York and 
got a job working for ASCAP, just monitoring TV shows for the music that they played. But it was a chance to, to still practice guitar and be in New York. And uh, then I moved into an apartment with other musicians and we were friendly with the owners of the building. We divided up the night elevator shift in exchange for rent. Wow. So we all ran this uh, 11.30 to 7.30 a.m. elevator shift. And if, if you got a gig or something... Yeah, right. There were people to do it. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a very nice situation for a few years. And, uh, and we wrote, wrote a song about it, which we recorded called... I'm the elevator man. Now, don't you laugh, because if you don't like it, I'll give you the shaft. So that was kind of a funky elevator tune. And I'm assuming you're playing, but you're still playing the guitar? Yeah, I'm playing guitar. And I was, you know, I was working almost five nights a week uh, a lot at this funky little club on 72nd Street. The better I got, the more I realized I wasn't really loving it. Uh, and it always bothered me after playing trumpet that the, that you played at one place, but the sound came out, out of an amplifier somewhere else. And that always seemed really artificial. I could never get past that. And also I felt like I had less control over my sound. It was more a matter of changing dials than really creating it yourself. Trumpet feels very much like just an extension of, of you. Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. About that time, a friend of mine from college wanted to move to New York, who was a trumpet player. You know, he said, look, if you don't want to play trumpet, that's your business. But if you think it's because of some physical problem, I think I can help you. And uh, so he, he basically, you know, just talked me into uh, trying it again. And as soon as I started playing again, I realized I felt that connection again that was missing, you know. Yeah. And he also found a great teacher who again played in the New York Philharmonic named Vince Penzarella, who was also at that time teaching Wynton Marsalis and John Faddis and a lot of great players. And so, you know, and this time I really, you know, made a point of just absorbing everything he said. Some of the other teachers I'd had before were kind of natural players who weren't good at describing what they did. And and Vince had been in a car accident that broke a lot of bones in his face and he had to spend a year off and he had to learn again and he was very conscious of what he was doing and he really knew. So he was a perfect teacher for me. You know, I just learned a lot of great lessons from him. One was, you know, if you have a bad habit, just concentrate on doing it right for two weeks and it'll become a new habit. Yeah, well, he not only knew how to fix it, he, he knew it could be done. Right. So yeah. you knew that right. if you did what he said, yeah. it well, could be I done. Put, I put my faith in him. Yeah. Exactly. And it paid off, yeah. The last thing I expected was that I would be making a living playing trumpet. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't really know that such a thing was, was even possible, <laughs> except for, you know. I mean, because everybody thinks you got to go to New York at the top of your game, you got to be ready, you got to be, you know, make a big splash, all that kind of thing. It was the opposite for me. Uh, it was, I was starting almost from scratch again. Um, and, but I realized that the quickest way I was going to improve was to just go out and play and try to play with the best players I could. And, you know, it worked uh, really beyond what I was expecting. This is what I heard, you tell me if I'm correct. You don't have the expectation that you're going to make a living as a trumpet player, Yeah. but you badly want to play the trumpet. Yeah. And 
so you simply go about doing this thing that you very much want to do right. without particularly having expectations. Right. And that in itself is what takes you where you didn't expect yeah. to go. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, my goal was just to play as much as I could and play with the best players I could. And New York is great. Uh, you know, I mean, people complain about this and that. And there's plenty to complain about, but it's the the greatest concentration of great musicians anywhere. In any case, about six months after I uh, started playing, I think I did my first job, which was with Vince Giordano. Vince has a band that uh, recreates music of 1920s and 30s. I started that association with him. How did that happen? My brother, I think, was called to do it because he was in town and he was making connections and he couldn't couldn't make it or he got something else so he called me and I arranged for him he could come in for the second set so I said well please come in in case my chops <laughs> give out you know in case I just can't make it um, he showed up and I played the whole night and uh, and also with Vince you have to read you have to it's really good preparation for a lot of things so you know, one thing led to another. I played with Vince. I kind of got on the traditional jazz circuit. I used to sub at Eddie Condon's club on 54th Street. Played with Bob Wilbur, uh, Peanuts, Hucko. These are guys, you know, traditional jazz figures uh, who were still quite active at that time. And then Benny Goodman eventually. Ah. And so he formed a band uh, in the beginning of the 80s. Bob Wilbur did a... Uh, 50th anniversary of the Carnegie Hall concert, concert and sent a tape to Benny, hoping that just hire his band. What Benny typically did is just hire people in the band, out of, it, you know, right, out of his right, band. Right. I ended up working with him for the last year and a half of his life. There's many stories about Benny Goodman, uh, which are true, <laughs> but he could be very gracious. He could be totally inspiring on a musical level. I mean, as I've said many times, I never heard him play the same thing twice. He was constantly improvising, you know, at a high level, you know, and, and his style was, was still developing. He was always searching. Um, and he was a real perfectionist, just learning the way he rehearsed the band. It, it taught me a lot about why his bands were so distinctive and uh, how he got this great feeling of spontaneity yet this precision at the same time, you know. Uh, he had a whole thing where you'd think he was crazy, but there was a method to the madness, you know. And then there was just some plain madness, and he could be a real uh, piece of work at times. Uh, but I think that for us, Ken Poplowski was in the band at the same time, and, uh, you know, a group of other people that were kind of, you know, around the same age. And we totally respected Benny on his own terms. I think that when he put together big bands in the past, he found guys that were more beholden to, you know, modern jazz and just sort of looked at it as, as you know, something to do to make some money, and they thought it was corny. But, you know, it's like the times were changing, and fortunately for Benny, he lived long enough to see a new generation of people that just respected that music on its own terms and recognized it as classic, which it was, mm -hmm. yeah. It's not like we'd rather necessarily be doing I mean, I always play different styles as well, but I took that as seriously and, uh, and, and we all wanted to try to learn it from him as best we could. 
Um, so I think he really pre he sensed that and he really appreciated that. And I, I think that that did his heart good, but his doctor talked about doing his heart bad. His doctor told him, look, you know, advised him against leading a big band again and doing the going out and doing jobs. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was just too much for him, but, you know, like we, we played a job at Wolf Trap in Virginia on a Saturday and that following Wednesday he died. But, you know, he, was, he had his clarinet in his hands, he was practicing, he was getting himself ready for the next job. I think that's how he wanted to go. How old was he? He was 77, I think. Well, it's not that old. Not that old. But he had a series of health problems, you know, leading up to that. So so that was... that was Well, uh, that was unfortunate for the band, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, not yeah. just well, for we, him. We had dates booked, you know, a year in advance. So, yeah, so that was over. They didn't want the band without him. No. And I must say that Ken has been a big influence on me because he, the idea of making a living as a jazz player seemed like an unattainable goal. And one thing I really respect Ken for and that he taught me was he was just going to go ahead and play jazz and that was it. And he made it happen. You have to remember that, you know, at that time, you know, when there was still a generation of established jazz artists beyond us, Phil Woods, Clark Terry, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, you know, <laughs> I mean, you felt like you had to stand in line behind them, and, and how, how could you compete with them anyhow? Yeah. Uh, but Ken find, kind of found a niche, uh, initially through a guy named Carl Jefferson, who was the, uh, who founded Concord Records, mm-hmm. and so, and he was looking for two things, uh, to distinguish his record company from others. One is that there was a lot of mainstream jazz that was just being unrecorded because the major labels, either they weren't interested in jazz at all, or they would, Herbie Hancock or Miles Davis or the household names, you know, that's all they were interested in. Uh, Carl Jefferson was interested in this whole wealth of mainstream jazz players, many of the older people whose career he, you know, revived, like Mel Torme and uh, of course, Rosemary Clooney, who practically gave her a new career. Uh, and and hooked her up with Scott Hamilton and Warren Mache, this new generation of mainstream players. And so like that, he was interested in finding young mainstream guys. And so Ken sent a demo to Carl Jefferson of just him and Frank Vignola, who's a super virtuoso guitar player. And then and Howard Alden was another one of the mm-hmm. people, another guitar player. So, you know, I, I have to say that it was largely through Ken's good graces that I ended up on the label. So I, I did five CDs. But again, you found the people that you needed at the time yeah. to move you in the direction you didn't know you could go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always been like another side to it, though, which is that, and this is something I've never quite resolved, part of the jazz ethos is you're supposed to express yourself and you're supposed to just be true to that forever. To me, that's a bit like uh, an author writing the same book every time, you know? I mean, because there's a lot of, you know, jazz history out there that I've absorbed, and and I also got into the music you know, listening to the early stuff first, but then listening to more modern stuff and catching people live who were still creating the music in the moment. Also, my formative period, because I'm a little older than Ken, uh, we have the same birthday, but I'm 10 years exactly older. So uh, I grew up in the 60s when it was still, everything was very fresh, experimental, 
you know, including rock, jazz, yeah. all the boundaries were being torn down, classical music, everything. And everybody's record collection then was very... Uh, eclectic. Eclectic, yeah. You mm -hmm. listen to Ravi Shankar, you, <laughs> listen, you know, you listen to... Uh, the Beatles and you listen yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, to, right. to Berio. <laughs> right, 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 right. You listen to uh, Jimi Hendrix and you listen to Coltrane, everybody had Love Supreme and Miles, you know. Uh, and, you know, even Miles was getting into rock at that time. You know, everything was very fluid and very creative. And that was always my feeling about music. And then when I got to New York, I found myself getting pigeonholed as a traditional player. And Because and, you could. Yeah, because I couldn't, because that's where the work was available to me. And as I said, well, you know, I mean, the, the, the trumpet players of that era were kind of on their way out, I mean, just physically, you know, they were either dying or incapacitated or weren't playing. But, you know, there was still Dizzy and Miles and Freddie Hubbard and Woody <laughs> right. Shaw, and you can go on and on and on. But, you know, I, I loved their music, too, and uh, was very influenced by it. So I was always, you know, I put, the first record I put out was original tunes kind of in, in a more modern mold with Michael Brecker on it. And, and he was already pretty well established at that time. It was kind of a favor for him to, to help me out with this. And, uh, but he was great. You know, I loved Michael. It was fantastic. You know, and it got really good reviews, but it didn't lead to any work in that direction. And I always found that the work being offered to me was in more uh, mainstream traditional jazz. You know, the major labels could see the writing was on the wall. You know, Dizzy Gillespie died, then Miles was having health problems, and, uh, you know, Lee Morgan was gone, uh, Freddie Hubbard was inactive before he died. Uh, you know, so when Wynton Marsalis came, they just shifted focus to the, you know, the Young Lions, as they called them. And there was a whole series of them, and again, they seemed to pretty much have that niche sewn up. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into comparing you know, myself or the people I was working with, with, with that scene, you know, that turned into the Lincoln Center jazz scene. Uh, uh, but, you know, that was where uh, the focus, the whole focus was, and it was kind of the press and the jazz press and the, and the you know, the big venues and the festivals and that kind of thing. Okay, but they were still doing traditional jazz and you were getting hired to do that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of was, was chugging along in its own uh, area, you know, there was a, uh, this phenomenon of jazz parties. Like the one in Newport? In, in, in California. Yeah, in California, yeah, right. Yeah, like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. There were these societies all over the place, Jersey Jazz Society, uh, uh, yeah. one's in New England, one's, you know, in Virginia, you know, Texas, uh, you know, California. Uh, and what they would do is they would invite musicians to play music. It yeah. started with a guy named Dick Gibson, who was the inventor of the water pick. <laughs> and he with his money, but he was a, a real jazz fan. He and his wife, they would sponsor these events where he would invite 60 musicians. He did it on a grand scale. They were in Denver and, and Colorado Springs originally. And uh, invite all, but it was very main, mainstream to kind of bebop. Uh, it, he put together interesting uh, groups though. I mean, he would have Benny Carter, he would have Clark Terry, he would have Phil Woods, but then he would also have um, you know, Peanut Taco, Bob Wilbur, uh, Al Gray, and then he got into, you know, Scott Hamilton, Warren Vache, and then myself. And uh, so, it, you know, it was a real mix of, uh, of 
different generations. And a kind of interesting thing that hasn't made it in the history books, but it did have a musical uh, consequence, which was that up until that time, you know, the beboppers and the mainstream players kind of had a different language. They, they, they played different repertoires, largely. There was some overlapping of standards from the 30s, mostly. There's a whole traditional jazz repertoire which kind of dropped by later stylists. But, but these guys managed to, over the years, find a way, a repertoire that they could both work with and a language that they could, you know, communicate with, 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 with no problem. In a way, what it did is it just sort of enlarged the whole mainstream language and repertoire. So, in any case, these things held on and they still hold on. There's still a few of them. I mean, like I, the one in California. Yeah, I haven't done that one. But I, you know, there's one in Texas we do. There's one in uh, uh, Roswell, New Mexico, of all places <laughs> that we do. And there's other ones, but they're not as many. Used to be a certain generation, <clears throat> kind of the generation uh, above me that was mostly um, the ones that frequented that. You know, and they were retired, they had some money. Uh, and so kind of the same crowd that makes Sarasota cultural Mecca, you know, but but they were putting on these jazz parties, and uh, so at any rate, I did loads of those for through the '90s, uh, you know, mostly '90s, early 2000s. But there were also concerts, festivals, things. George Wayne had a group called the Newport All Stars with various floating personnel, but I did a lot. One of the other things I did in the '90s, which was kind of a high point, is that. Uh, George Ween formed this Carnegie Hall jazz band when the Lincoln Center Band was forming. Uh, so, so there were two ensembles, and they kind of drew on different pools of musicians. Um, and he hired me to arrange for that band a lot, so I did a lot of writing uh, for that, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and that, that was a great experience. I mean, the 90s were probably the peak period for me. Uh, you know, as far as work and notoriety and all that. Um, <clears throat> then when we got into the 2000s, uh, I don't know, I was getting frustrated with, because it felt like I'd reached this plateau and I wasn't, you know, I was able to record my own music. I was still writing my own music, but the only way I could get it out was to put on my own concerts or put on uh, or record it myself and issue it myself, which is incredibly expensive, needless to say. And so I was using the proceeds from other things uh, to finance this. Uh, uh, you know, also rental income from this house I bought in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, uh, you know, by hook or by crook, you know, you do these things. But then things changed a little. My, my wife and I uh, decided we wanted to adopt a baby. So we did that uh, in 2007. And we, we found a baby who happened to be born in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, I'm from Chicago, and our, our birth dates are almost the same. So we adopted him, and, uh, you know, it's just like once that happened, I couldn't really justify to myself spending all this money. I needed to yeah. get something for, you know, for him. And also, I, I was just kind of getting a, a little, uh, I don't know, burnt out or disillusioned with the 
New York music scene. So we moved to Pennsylvania about two hours from New York, so I could go in if I had to. We named our son Bix, by the way. <laughs> you know, we just thought that was a better place for him to grow up, and I, you know, I think it was. And, you know, we did that. I was out there for seven or eight years, but my musical career kind of flatlined. <laughs> not, not exactly, but, but pretty much. And I was kind of uh, happy with that. I mean, there's another incident I guess I should mention in, here in passing, which is that I wrote a book that came out in 2010. What, what was bothering me in the jazz scene was that, you know, when this Young Lions phenomena came in, I felt that what got lost in jazz was an emphasis on the creative part. It became more of a performer's art, like it was going the route of classical music. In other words, I, there, there seemed to be a consensus. Now is the time for jazz to just reflect on its past, kind of re-explore, uh, re-examine re the tradition, you know. Now, I have no objection to that. That's fine. I've done a lot of that myself. But the creative aspect gets really downplayed. What, what was bothering me is I was hearing a lot of stuff that sounded like it could have been made 20 years older. By, like, like I quote Miles Davis in my book as saying, didn't we do it good enough the first time? You know, again, it's it's the road that classical music is has gone down, where it's it's pretty tenuous its relationship to our li our life today. It's just kind of a reflection of another era that, in many ways, was had a lot of things that we lack these days. So you can appreciate it from that standpoint. Uh, but nevertheless, it's it's real connection to our experience as we live it today is pretty minimal. And, um, you know, I mean, okay, it's eternal. It's it's great. It's music, you know, it's timeless. Yeah, I understand that and you're that, not criticizing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it at all. And I, and I think people should play and dedicate themselves to whatever music they love. But it just seems that there should be a special place reserved for creative music of our time. And to me, that's the whole jazz tradition that's what's great about it you know is all these people were such rugged individuals who had their own way of doing things and god knows where where it came from but it wasn't like that before them and it was different after you know and there were so many of them you know i mean that's one of the amazing things about jazz it's like you know you look at all the you know the figures in classical music and they span 300 years or something well jazz in the space of about 50 years 50 years really uh, created such a wealth of great individual musicians you know I mean it's that they're connected yeah oh sure right so that sure. if the culture is saying no let's not break barriers right. let's not take risks right. then the music might follow it right right right, right. although I still think that yeah that, that's that's true about how certain things are going to take and other things are not going to take however I think it's the responsibility of the writers to have a long view and be a little bit more sage about this stuff and say, well, still, you know, we still have to support in some way things moving on. I just wanted to look at that whole thing and say, where are we now? How did we get here? What's, you know, what are the causes for this as best as I could ascertain? So I wrote this, this uh, book about it. What's it called? It's called, uh, well, You'll see what where the problem sits in. <laughs> it's called Where the Dark and the Light Folks Meet. 
And, you know, because I thought that uh, it was a lot of, uh, you know, racial issues or, uh, let me put it this way, non-musical issues had kind of taken over the jazz dialogue or whatever, that that, that had kind of pushed things in a certain wow. d- direction. And, you know, fully aware that anything, as I said in the first chapter, anything you say about race at this point in time uh, will be controversial and will offend somebody. So I knew that it was going to get some heat. Um, and, you know, predictably what happened is basically some people said, this is what people think, but they won't say it. Mm-hmm. Or that, uh, you know, there's a book whose time has come. But it was really severely attacked by a lot of the critics. And it's a different age now because with the Internet, you can kind of bypass criticism. Yeah. You can get your music out in a way you couldn't before. But before the Internet, uh, you had to go through these gatekeepers, Yes. you know, to book you or to write about you. It, people basically who had access to audiences way larger than a single musician does. So, uh, so I had to, you know, talk about kind of how critical reception was of certain things and how it changed over time and about certain biases. And just by quoting directly, you know, what people had written, I wasn't making this up out of whole cloth. I was just saying, this person said this. Mostly it's when people want to, uh, drag social issues into musical situations, which seems to be happening more and more. That's all that happens on college campuses these days, you know. I mean, the cultural studies, unfortunately, that's they're really having an effect on jazz, I'm afraid. But, you know, again, one of the things is that they, they tend to look at it through the same lens they look through everything, that, you know, jazz it has to do with uh, oppression, uh, you know, racial discrimination. Of course, that's a factor. But if you go back to the 20s, it's a kind of an interesting thing. The more, like, technically, when there was more discrimination, segregation going on, the music doesn't reflect it. The music is happy. You listen to that music of the 20s, like what Vince Giordano does. It's just so positive. And in a way, it expresses... A lot of the hope, you know, for the blacks felt when they came up north and they first got established in large neighborhoods in Chicago and New York and Harlem. Um, But also, you know, because there was still a a professional class of African-Americans that mostly catered to their own community. But what was happening with the musicians is that they were crossing the boundaries. They're the first ones to really be professionals, but be appreciated among white society which is a whole chapter that, you know, that I wrote about it. Again, very controversial, but true. Um, that if you look at, even at New Orleans and on to Chicago and New York in the 20s, there was this amazing acceptance and interest and fascination with, you know, what we would call black music, you know, which, you know, if you call it American music or just jazz these days, you have to kind of, back off and say, well, of course, it's black music and all that. But the, but the thing, if you really study it, it was accepted. Even going back to ragtime, people knew it came from black culture, but it, was, it came into the mainstream very rapidly, which is kind of amazing considering recording is very new, radio is very new, you know, spread like wildfire, even to Europe, you know, 
and these by those demand for black bands to tour Europe 1919. So at any rate, uh, that's one of the points I was making is that there's a disconnect between a lot of jazz history, the way it's typically taught, and what, what really <laughs> happened. And, and also the fact that, you know, okay, they all want to talk about oppression and getting screwed. But really what it was, was uh, something that really brought the races much closer together. You know, it's a very unpopular view today, you know, which is sad. But that, again, has an effect in the music business today. You see too much of a voluntary segregation. You know, blacks playing with blacks, whites playing with whites. And not that people necessarily want to do that. I think now it's kind of more, I guess, a self-segregation on the part of African-Americans, which could be, you know, again, another controversial statement. But, you know, if you want to look at the times we live in, if you see what goes on in college campuses, there's a lot of, you know, blacks wanting to connect with their own culture, for lack of better words, self-segregate. And it's a choice, you know, it's not like they're being forced by anybody, uh, but it has, you know, it has repercussions on things. Uh, you know, I see this as sad myself, because I think that a lot of the strength of the music came with all these cross-pollinizations. Mm, right. And unfortunately, that's become a controversial attitude where people want to talk about appropriation more than cross-fertilization. <laughs> I'm not happy with any situation in which extra musical considerations affect where the music is for and how it's performed, who gets to do it, this kind of stuff. I, I like to keep music separate. But again, that's that's a very, uh, you know, that's kind of out of step. Right. And today it's really so much about mine and my kind. And it sounds like what you're saying is the music is reflecting that as well. Right, right. And, you know, I guess so for some people that's fine. And for me, I think it takes people away from what it is in music that I think is true understanding. Because, you know, I mean, great music, whether it's Louis Armstrong or Beethoven, it's great, and yet it's universal. It's uh, elite, but it's open to anybody who can, who can hear it. And I just think it's unfortunate a lot of these directions. You know, nevertheless, we go about doing what we do. And after I wrote this book, and I got beat up pretty bad by the guy who was the president of the Jazz Journalists Association, who basically he just wanted to defend the notion of jazz journalism, regardless of whatever stupid things somebody might have said once upon a time, including people that are still living. He just wanted me to kind of divorce myself from that the New York jazz scene yeah. a little bit. And I also felt that I'd already reached a plateau where I got as far as I could. I had my original music. I'd, you know, spent a lot of money recording it, you know, performing it. Uh, and it got as far as it did. And I'm just glad it's there. And I left a record of it. And and that's that. And, and, and I find that, you know, uh, having a son at that time was really great for me spent so much time just concentrating on myself. For him, it just immediately pulled me out of that. And it was great. I mean, I'd never been tuned into how much just the love for kids. I mean, that is just the most basic thing in the world. And how you can bond with other people, you know, in these schools, you know, mm -hmm. they're just, um, I, I don't know, to me, it's all really sacred space, you know. 
where this whole thing about bringing up kids is just so important. This is what is necessary for a child to become the person that they're going to be, is Mm -hmm. for someone to care that much and see them as sacred space and offer them what you clearly have offered your son. And it's interesting, too, because music, it's almost like having a child, isn't it? That you love it and you Mm -hmm. want it to be good and you want to be as good at it as you can. And so it's wonderful that you were large enough Mm to be able to take that dedication and that attachment mm-hmm. and give it to a child. Yeah. That's lovely. Well, I think that's it was the right time for me, too. I think he saved my life in a way, just to, to put a coat on this whole thing. Um, so, you know, it's funny. My, my wife got tired of the winters up in Pennsylvania <laughs> and the lack of sunshine. We've been coming down here for uh, uh, vacations, you know, like on the holidays. She just decided, no, we got to move to Florida. And I was kind of reluctant, but yeah, okay, we did it. But the thing that I've discovered, what I wasn't expecting, it surprised me, is that how much music, you know, what a musical mm-hmm. culture is going on down here and and uh, how many terrific musicians there are. And I'm playing, I think, as much or more, certainly those last days in, in New York. I feel like I've been kind of a little rusty and now I'm getting back and meeting a lot of musicians who are active, who are much older than me, which is very inspiring. My last question is, Mm -hmm. having spent a life dedicated to music, which you clearly have, is there anything you would say about what that's like or what you would (laughs) think about it? Well, it's very, I mean, mine, I, I would say, was very unpredictable. You know, it's just things happen. One thing led to another. Uh, Things... You know, I mean, it's it's been interesting because of its unpredictability. It's been uh, uh, sometimes a little scary, uh, you know, on the financial end. But, you know, I've, I managed to do it. And, uh, you know, like Stravinsky was once asked, what, what's his advice for young composers? He said, go out and make a cool million first. <laughs> and, uh, and that's back when a million dollars was a lot more than this today. <laughs> and, and in a way, like what I, one of the things I learned early on in New York is the first thing you gotta do is get your living arrangements settled because you're at the mercy of all kinds of landlords and you know prices going up and all kinds of insanity. And so I, you know, I was, again, I was fortunate at a time when I could buy a house that needed a lot of work, but turned into a great investment and I was able to rent part of it out and that helped. And so, you know, that's, that was really a a good thing to, 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 uh, keep, uh, you know, keep, keep the, the wolves from the door, you know, that, that was my base and my basis for, for doing all the other stuff allowed me to have freedom and some financial freedom. So, you know, you do whatever you have to do, whether it's running an elevator all night or, right, <laughs> you right, know, or, right. or being a landlord or, uh, I mean, I could tell you about some jobs that Ken and I did uh, <laughs> make your hair stand. There was one job when we were supposed to play with the Marvelettes for a uh, convention of car salesmen and two of the Marvelettes got arrested that night. Uh, so we never uh, got the details, but we, one Marvelette showed up with no music and we were told by the manager that if we didn't put on a show, we wouldn't get paid. So I, I would give anything now to have a tape of that show. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but that, those are the things. Ken and I agree that was the worst job we ever did in our lives. So, <laughs> but all worth it. Well, <laughs> most of it. Most of it. You do what you have to do. Okay, that's a great place to stop. Thank you. I hope when you listen to someone like Randy, you are asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Am I completely satisfied with the way I spent it and the things I'm doing with it? Well, if that isn't so, The Lynn Show is about saying it may not be too late to recover something you may have left behind. Um, as always, I hope you got something you can use from this show, something you didn't know, something that intrigued you, something that will inspire you to continue trying to be the person you really are. We're going to go out on a little cut from one of Randy's CDs in which Benny Goodman is congratulating him on his playing. And then I'm going to play another cut, but this one from another CD of Randy's Trumpet After Dark, the iconic Billy Strayhorn composition, Lush Life. Oh, hello, this is Benny Goodman, Randy. I just wanted to tell you, you did a hell of a job last night. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
I'm getting older My hair is turning gray Always in my face And figure I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night I may have gotten 